us on the From the Front Lines podcast. Today we're going to be talking to Representative Wes Cantrell about some of his school choice legislation. He's got two different bills that he's introduced this session. He's going to tell us a little bit about them, why the need for two bills, what the differences are between the two, and I think it's going to be a really exciting conversation. Well, Wes, I appreciate you uh, joining us today, man. You have been just on the front line of every social, conservative, pro-family, Christian issue down here at the Capitol, and you're just a rock star. And so I appreciate you taking the time to visit with us today. Tell, tell everybody, where, where are you from? Where do you represent? And what's, what do you do? Yeah, Cole, thanks for having me on the show today. Um, I live in Woodstock. I've been in Woodstock since 1992. So 30 years uh, in that community. They haven't kicked you out yet? Um, no. I started out as a youth pastor at a church in Marietta, and then I directed a nonprofit for nine years to help kids reach their campuses for Christ, and now I've been on staff at First Baptist Woodstock as the young adult pastor for the past 15 years. And this is my eighth year representing the fine people of House District 22, which is East Cherokee County, a little bit of South Forsyth, and a tiny sliver of North Fulton. Gotcha. Well, okay. That, that, that's a little bit different space of a district, uh, and so you <laughs> yes, represent some some different uh, different uh, folks, yes. uh, different ideologies there. So, I, but uh, imagine that's challenging. So, you're one of the few pastors that are that's you know you're you're here at the Capitol, you're a state rep, um, but you're also a pastor. How does how does that work? There's a lot of people that would discourage that. Um, but I think you managed to, to really make it work. And what's what's your what's your motivation, ration? How does that work for you? Well, a lot of people did try to discourage me when I when I decided to run. Uh, you know, why would a pastor run to be a state representative? And my question is, why would a pastor not run to be a state representative? I'm fortunate at that time. I my pastor was Dr. Johnny Hunt. He was very supportive of this uh, because not only do I get to represent my district, but there's a lot of pastoral aspects to to being an elected official. I've been able to help a lot of our church members navigate through some uh, difficult things with the Department of Labor, with uh, immigration issues with their congressmen, so different things. So it's so I think it's helped in a lot of different ways. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it for the faint of heart. <laughs> it's been no picnic for sure, but um, but I felt like God called me to do it, and it wasn't something I wanted to do. In fact, I was 52 at the time, and it's really the only time I can remember feeling like God asked me to do something that I really did not want to do and I obeyed with no joy I obeyed out of a sense of duty Mm. I really did now there's been a lot of joy in the journey of this but there's also been a lot of hard work and I tell people the two things I hate the most about this gig are the suit and the commute and uh, I hear that putting on this suit I had to go buy a bunch of suits and then that 39 mile drive uh, every day can be challenging yeah, I've, I've seen you do your pastoral work. You're not the wear the suit kind of pastor either. So. <laughs> no. and that, it's kind of uh, ironic that uh, a, a minister had to go out and buy suits to be a state rep. <laughs> you know? but I appreciate that about you. Just as an aside, you know, for those listening, I, I think, you know, if you if you happen to be in the Woodstock, Cherokee County area, First Baptist Woodstock is just, not only is it a, you know, mega church, I mean, it's, it's a huge uh, facility, but it is... It is one of the most God-honoring places that you could hope to go in the state of Georgia. God-honoring teaching, God-honoring pastors, people that would allow a guy like Wes Cantrell to come. We're the dual hat of pastor and state representative. It's a very culturally-minded church, understanding that we have to be salt and light in this world. So I've got a great appreciation for your church, for your pastor, mm-hmm. uh, and for all the church leadership that you have at uh, FBCW. Um, before we jump into issues, 
uh, just to land the plane on this, so to speak, you mentioned there's a lot of pastoral elements down here. Uh, what, what's a pastor takeaway? Because I see you ministering to your fellow mm-hmm. colleagues. Um, is that something that you're you feel like you're able to do and called to do? I am. One of the things, one of the words of advice that I got when I was first getting elected was to really be intentional about asking people how I could pray for them. And so I've tried to make that a pattern down here. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter who who I'm talking to, a lobbyist or a colleague. How can I pray for you? And um, uh, I have gotten multiple phone calls through the years from colleagues down here, both Republicans and Democrats, that say, "Hey, you know, Wes, you're kind of my pastor, mm. and I got a pastoral question. I got a pastoral concern. I've got this issue. Can you give me some advice?" Uh, that's the part of this gig I'm going to miss the most because that's that's my passion. That's where my my heart is uh, in my day to day life is helping people, praying for people, um, giving you know godly wisdom, hopefully. To folks that are younger than me, um, and so that part of it's been a lot of fun. Um, it is challenging at times to be a pastor down here because um, your buttons get pushed a lot, and so you're on. The, I'm really, on the, in politics, <laughs> I'm on the edge of losing my mind and losing my witness um, a lot of times. You know, so you have to really know how to hold your tongue and be patient with people, and separate policy from personality. And uh, you know, just the other night, I, I was at a dinner, sat next to. A Democrat colleague who I like so much. We get along great. We have tried and tried to find areas of agreement on policy, and we have not succeeded. We cannot find. We literally cannot find anything that we agree upon. Not uh, even time change policy. <laughs> yeah, not even that. That's true. He voted against that bill, but uh, but he uh, he uh, but he's he's delightful to be around, and and we enjoy each other's company. And it's a and even this morning, same thing. Had a, an encounter with another colleague and. Uh, uh, we had a very honest conversation about something that happened yesterday on the floor that he participated in that I felt like he crossed a line. And uh, he agreed He agreed with me that he crossed the line. And he also said he did it on purpose. He's not running for re-election. Hmm. Uh, and he said, I did it on purpose because I don't like that guy. And I said, well, you violated the principle there because you're supposed to be focused on policy, not personality. And I, it bothered me that you, I felt like, I felt like you were better than that. You know, and that you know, don't you need to finish well? Don't 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 ruin your reputation. You know, six weeks from being done down here, yeah. when you've got had a good reputation up to this point, now you're going to spoil it because you're done with this place. You know, yeah. I understand it, but I don't. I, I wouldn't condone it. And you know, I got to hold on for six more weeks myself. So <laughs> <laughs> I got you. Hopefully, you can stay out of trouble the next yeah. six weeks. Um, but that is one of the things I appreciate and admire about you is, you know, Georgia has one of the largest legislatures in the world. you got 180 state house members, which I think is good enough for second or third largest legislature in the country outside of U.S. Congress. Uh, I think we've got the third or fourth largest state senate with 56 members combined. I believe it's the third largest legislature among the states. And then we've got the U.S. and British Parliament, maybe one other uh, that's a larger legislature. But it's massive. And yeah, it, it covers two buildings. And uh, you just talk to people in this building. You make a positive impact on people and how you pray for them, how you connect with them, and that's a powerful Christian witness. And you care about people, and that's one of the reasons I think that you've led the charge for school choice for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and the relationships that you've built with people across the aisle have really come into play here. And so I want to focus on you know school choice as an issue, and then there's one other issue I want to make sure we talk about before we wrap up. But school choice, you have sponsored HB60 and HB999, 
Uh, these are not the first school choice bills you've sponsored. You've led the charge for school choice for a number of years, and HB 60 is not new to this session. It was the last session. That's correct. Tell us about those two bills, what they do, how are they different, and what, you, what are you focused on right now? Okay, House Bill 60 uh, we had last year. It passed out of the Education Committee and passed out of rules and was eligible to go to the floor. But to be honest, I was concerned that it would fail when it got to the floor. I didn't, I didn't know for sure if I had the votes and I wanted to keep the bill alive. Mm. So we didn't vote it. So it came back this year. Um, and then I introduced House Bill 999 in order to kind of Herman really, Cain bill. Yeah, the Herman Cain bill. I actually asked for that number and they gave it to me, so it was kind of cool. They said they'd never had that request before. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, uh, it's school choice for all, Bill. And really, the 999 was not a distraction, but it was meant to really get a conversation started that I had not been able to successfully get started with HB 60. Uh, the bills are different. They're very similar, but they're different. HB 60 is targeted. It's targeted for the communities that need school choice the most, be kids from lower income families, kids that attend a, a chronically failing school, kids who have been in foster care or adopted out of foster care. They've been moved around a lot. If a family takes one of these kids in, they ought to be able to educate that child the same way they've educated their other children. We shouldn't mm -hmm. force them to send them in a different route. Kids from active military families, same thing, moved around a lot. And kids who have special needs, and we already have a special needs scholarship, but that is only good for private school tuition. And mm -hmm. about half the special needs families I talk to tell me that private school tuition is not an answer for them because of, because of a couple reasons. Number one, maybe there's not a private school nearby but number two, there are private schools, but they can't meet the needs, the specific yeah. needs of their child. So they need something a little more, you know, a flexible. Lot of homeschooling or doing something different. Homeschooling, tutoring, therapies, online, textbooks, these kind of things. They need they need this kind of an approach, Something, someone to come to their house. A lot of times the, the needs are so profound that transport, trans, transporting a student in that condition is very challenging. Mm. So... Um, uh, I left out. Oh yeah, and if you if you were denied the opportunity to be to have in person instruction for over a semester during the pandemic, you would be eligible for that scholarship. The reason being, I, I think school systems, you know, this is kind of controversial. I, I believe in local control. If they want to close themselves down to in person learning, I think that's their right to do so. But I think at the same time, it's the family's right then to look for another option for their for their child if their school closes. So I think we should give families an equal opportunity. If the school system can close down, families should have the opportunity to, uh, to take their student to a better learning environment. Because virtual learning is, or what did I say, remote, remote learning is remotely learning. It's so often. You yeah. know, it, especially for kids with special needs. So that's how HB60, it's more targeted. But when you add it all up, about 70% of Georgia's families would be eligible under that. Only, really, only the uh, wealthy would not be, you know, wealthy is obviously a subjective term, but only the wealthy would not be eligible. You have to be in public school, though, and I know that's, that's a rub for a lot of folks because they say, well, I homeschool. Why, why aren't I eligible? And the reason is because we already are paying for the, the education of these public school students. If I opened it up to students who were not currently in public school, it would create a fiscal note of millions of dollars, which would give my colleagues reason to vote against the bill. 
Gotcha. No, that's a, that's a, that's, a, that's tough because I mean I, I you know ideologically I'm much more in the HB nine 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 lane. I think we have an absolute fundamental right as parents to choose the best education for our kid, and it's it is the parents' tax dollars. I mean, it, it, I think tax dollars need to flow with the child. But 100%. H but HB sixty, and I, I I know you're with me there, but HB sixty is. Um, you know, Georgia struggled on the school choice issue here for a number of years. Um, you know, maybe we'd love to dive into, into some of the reasons why. But, you know, HB60 is probably the more likely to get across the finish line. Yeah. And uh, you, have to, you have to, you know, weigh these things out. You have to, what could be and what should be and what can be. Politics uh, is about the art of the possible, right? Exactly. And so, and even 999 requires them to be in public school. Mm-hmm. So it's not just for anybody. It's for all public school students. Yeah. There's no qualifiers after that. Gotcha. Um, well, so one of the challenges that we're running into, you mentioned trying to count the votes. You know, we have 180 members, like I said, in the Georgia State House. You have to have 91 votes to pass something. Um, it, HB 60 is the one that has passed committee. It's passed education committee. It's now sitting in rules. There's a process by which you're, you know, you're trying to make sure that you have a, a good vote count, that you've got the support. Do you have support? And what, what are the what are the trouble areas that you're finding as you're trying to make this case? Because I think, you know, most of your colleagues would agree that there's been some failures in, in education, that there's some some schools that are struggling and that we, you know, kids deserve opportunity. But where, where, what are the arguments against this thing that if, if mm-hmm. you know, we got a listener and they're, they're legislators against this, what, what do they need to be prepared to hear back and how can they counter those? Well, the main thing they're going to hear is that it takes money away from the public schools, and that's just simply not true. You've got to do the math on it. Uh, a few years ago, our uh, state economist, Dr. Jeffrey Dorfman, who's now, he, he's a state economist now. When he did this study, he was a professor at the University of Georgia. He studied it comprehensively for the entire state, and on average, he discovered that if a student took one of these scholarships, we call them promise scholarships, if a student took a promise scholarship, it would average saving the local public school $3,800. So not only would they they save money, but they wouldn't have the expense of educating that particular student. It would also result in a smaller class size, which is a good thing. And it would also result, the kids that are going to want to take these scholarships are kids who are not performing well in the public school. So it takes those kids out of the equation and gives you more kids that are in the right learning environment in the public school. So those kids do better. So the academic... The academic outcome studies show actually improve for both the students who leave the public school and for those who stay. It's really a win-win scenario. Plus, I've tied my bill into fully funding public schools. If we don't fully fund public schools, HB 60 is not activated. So, um, so it motivates the General Assembly to continue fully funding our public schools, which we've done four out of the last five years. I tell you, uh, you know, the to me one of the biggest arguments for school choice is when you're sitting in these committee rooms, and you're listening to these taxpayer-funded <laughs> lobbyists for the institutions come up and they're arguing about taking money out of the school system, but it's very clear they've never taken a math class in their life. I mean, you're a Georgia Tech guy. I mean, they they they, they could not have gotten through Georgia Tech because they're they're looking at this just purely from a some tax dollars are going elsewhere mm-hmm. but there's a thing called expenses i mean you have to spend money if you have a child in your school system you have to spend money on teachers on various other things those expenses go away with the child when you walk out of the school door and a lot of the money still stays there That's and right. so it's it's astronomically indicative of we have a big problem 
that a school choice can help solve. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> when you listen to the this. funding formula is set up so that the local tax dollars basically take care of the fixed costs, and then the state dollars are associated with the number of students that you have. So you get to keep all those those local dollars, about 50% of the funding. It's kind of like I tell people all the time. It's like if, uh, if I decided to... Uh, they, you know, I was, I'm a Publix guy. I always shop at Publix. But then they build a brand new Kroger that's closer to my house. It offers some particular products that I liked at Publix. Publix didn't offer, and so we decide to move our grocery shopping to Kroger. And I, I, I hate using name brands, but just for example only. So, but when I do that, if it was public schools, I would have to continue to give Publix 50% of my grocery budget, even though I'm no longer shopping there. And I would only get to use 50% of my budget at the Kroger. That's how silly this argument is. And so uh, the schools win when kids take a Promise Scholarship. The kids win when they take a Promise Scholarship. I just don't, I don't understand the downside to it at all. So uh, it's a win-win for both, for both communities, but it's just difficult to get the public schools to see it that way. Yeah, and politically, you know, it's 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 a it's a huge win. We've done we've done polling. I know others have done polling, and it's in our in our polling. You know, obviously we're a conservative organization. School choice was the was the issue that polled um, higher with demographics that don't always agree with us than mm-hmm. others. I mean, it, it was it's it's astronomically popular across the board, and um, it, you know, it's a huge political winner. But one of the things I think we see down here. Is a lot of the Republicans, you know, which are more ideologically, philosophically pro-school choice, you know, they're in rural districts. They're in districts where the largest employer is the local public school system. Mm -hmm. Um, They get a lot of pressure on that, and their schools are not as bad. I mean, their schools are not underperforming, or they're not, you know, teaching dangerous ideologies and those kinds of things, shoving down, you know, indoctrination down the kids' throats. And so they, they feel less of the pressure. Uh, on the let's get kids out as well as they feel more pressure from the institution on let's keep kids in and so it becomes a very difficult uh, argument on that front but uh, what what do you think the prognosis is and if someone's listening how can they influence passage of this bill? I would say we're really close we're really really close to having the votes that we need I've got uh, seven or eight Democrats that I think will support the bill. And that's where some of the relationships you built are exactly. really key. Exactly yeah. and what I, it's funny Cole because what I hear from my Democrat colleagues is Wes I support your bill, but if I vote for your bill, my party will kill me. They'll annihilate me. I, mean, I won't, you know, I'm done. My Republican friends who, who they say to me, I support your bill, but if I vote for it, my superintendent tells me he'll never speak to me again. So uh, the public school lobby is very powerful. In fact, I think it's the most powerful lobby in the state because everybody knows your superintendent. I have a great relationship with my superintendent. Uh, I wish I could tell you about an off-the-record phone call that I had <laughs> with him in the last couple of days about this bill, but I can't tell you about that. But my, my son teaches. In, Maybe next time. My son, my son teaches in the public school system. In my state. I'm a former public school educator myself, but we home educated our kids. My mother was on the state school board. I get it, but it's not an either-and, either-or pop proposition. It's both-and. We can, we can fully fund our public schools and, and do better and continue to improve them while at the same time offering an option for that small percentage of folks who need it. So we're close. What I need you to do, your listeners to do, is to reach out to their state representative, whoever that is, and ask them where they stand on House Bill 60, the, the Promise Scholarship Act is what it's entitled, 
and tell them they're a school choice voter. <clears throat> the polls are clear. I mean, if polling could persuade politicians, I don't know. I mean, 83% of Republicans support it, 70% uh, of Democrats. And then racially, it's there's not a, there's not a race under 70%. Blacks, Hispanics, Asians, whites, all support school choice at over 70%. Uh, parents whose kids are currently in public school support school choice at 77%. Wow. And then public school teachers send their own kids to private school at twice the national average. National average is 10% of kids go to private school, but just over 20% of public school teachers send their own kids to private school. So I don't understand what the big deal is about giving folks just a little bit of choice. Yeah. Well, you know, so folks listening to this should feel guilty, okay? It, you, if you want to give Wes <clears throat> a big present, if you want to give him this drop, <laughs> drop the mic moment, and you do not call your state rep or state senator asking them to pass uh, HB 60, then you are failing Wes Cantrell, okay? <laughs> you don't want to fail Wes Cantrell, so make sure that you do that. <clears throat> Brother, I, I, you know, I'm sympathetic to the term limits argument, but we're going to miss you down here, and hopefully we have you back on a podcast to celebrate a victory in your drop the mic so. moment, but I so. uh, appreciate your work on this, on the school choice issue, on, on gambling, on so many others. Uh, you've been a great leader and a great friend, and I appreciate you. Thanks, Cole. Thanks for listening today. The From the Frontlines podcast is a project of Frontline Policy Council. You can find out more at frontlinepolicy.com. Make sure you follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts so that you can get our next episode, which will also be with Representative Cantrell. He'll be talking about gambling and the constant efforts to bring up casino gambling in, in this state and why it is a bad thing for Georgia. So you're going to want to make sure that you hear that one.